0: I wonder to what extent people can shift themselves versus create the environment that enables them to shift. So what they have control over might not be the shifting, it might be the environment that they construct. And what's more, it could be that that environment uh, can facilitate a number of things. And what you're less in control of is what's going to happen in those environments. So I have a phrase which is you know be careful environment you you select because you will adapt to it.
1: Welcome everyone. My name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. Now, many of the guests I am drawn to on this podcast come about because I believe they provide a different lens on the topic of influence. FBI negotiators talking about high-stakes conversations, orchestra conductors sharing their lessons in leadership, Big wave surfers talking about how they master fear, how how they get to the crest of that wave and don't back down. Now, today's interview takes that different lens. It twists it. It turns it into an optical illusion and then reflects back at you the very assumption that made you perceive it as a lens in the first place. Sound unnecessarily complicated? Possibly. And yet, and yet, it's vital to understanding the most fundamental tool of influence that you have available. How you perceive and then respond to the world around you. Every single piece of information you receive about people, situations, tools from this podcast or other sources that you follow, they are all ultimately only ever shaped by the meaning that you give them. Now how do we choose what meaning to give something versus something else? We do it by cross-referencing that particular piece of information, that particular piece of stimuli against a series of assumptions. All of those assumptions were formed by our past experiences. So basically we go into an internal checklist in our head. Have I ever been in this situation before, seen that facial expression, heard that word, met somebody with that hair colour, and what happened last time? So again, why, why is this of knowledge important to influence it is because as a bottom line your assumptions dictate how you respond in every situation every decision that you make about how to proceed who to trust whether to leap into the next opportunity how to navigate the next high intensity conversation whether to stand up and be heard on stage or in the boardroom they are all 100 percent dictated by these assumptions these assumptions that were created somewhere in your past So in summary, our history determines what we look at, and what we look at creates our history. Cycle after cycle of thinking you're running the show, only to realize that in fact, an out-of-date show, usually with a very young or inexperienced scriptwriter, is actually running you. Unless, in the words of my next guest, Bo Lotto, you can learn how to deviate. Bo is a professor of neuroscience at the University of London and a visiting scholar at New York University. His work and research over the past 25 years has focused purely on biology and psychology of perception. In layman's terms, in my terms, he studies the science of how we see the world and then how we respond and how that knowledge can be used to unlock our ability to create, to innovate and to influence and ultimately to affect change in any area of our lives. In 2001, Bo founded the Lab of Misfits, a neurodesign studio that was resident for two years at London Science Museum. He is also the author of the best-selling book, Deviate, The Science of Seeing Things Differently. In today's assumption-busting conversation, we cover off why your aim should always be to know less than you did yesterday especially about the people and the situations you think you know the most about. Why we are usually blind to our assumptions, especially those we inherit from our families or culturally, and how to identify and decode our programmed responses. How to stop focusing on answers and start becoming obsessive about asking better questions. And anybody that follows me on any channel will know that I have it. an obsession about asking better questions, you only get the answers that meet the level of the question that you ask. How you perceive yourself literally determines what you see in the world. And this one blew my mind. I'll let Bo explain. But in essence, how powerful you feel in any given moment changes your physiology and your ability to be able to see patterns or not see patterns. So it literally changes your physiology, the way you perceive yourself to be from a power state perspective. He will hopefully explain that better than I did. How to use play, or if you dislike the word play, experiments, to first overcome our hatred and then start to thrive in uncertainty. And finally, why as leaders, parents, and influencers, having an awareness of our biases and assumptions, and then being able to deviate quickly, gives us choice. So... Grab yourself a caffeinated beverage of choice, or for this, for this one, maybe a glass of wine, and get ready to jump into a world where your perceptions of what's true are a mile away from what is actually possible. Welcome to the world of Bo Lotto. Welcome to the podcast, Bo Lotto.
0: Thank you very much. It's very good to be here, actually. (laughs)
1: Where are are you, actually, in this moment? Are you in New York?
0: I'm in New York. I was in Miami earlier. uh, I can't remember. It was earlier today. Um, I'm now in New York and about to set off again.
1: Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you for sitting still long enough to have this conversation. I usually kick off the podcast with the same question, and the question is do you consider yourself to be an introvert or an extrovert? And, and the reason I ask that question is because I feel like it's a bit of a social experiment on my behalf. I feel like there's a story out there in the worlds that I work in and places I go that in order to be influential, in order to um, own your voice, you need to be an extrovert.
0: Mm. And so,
1: yeah, I'm, I'm asking everybody I speak to how you consider yourself.
0: Yeah. So am I an introvert or an extrovert? I suppose I would say I'm neither and both. And it's a fascinating question more generally of uh, uh, who is someone, what's their identity? And we're in fact doing research on exactly this question, which is the reason why I say it, which is basically we're many things and we're also contextual. So my answer is maybe not the answer you expected, but um, there are situations in which I will behave extrovertedly and there are situations in which I'll behave introvertedly. Uh, and they vary. So I find those questions uh, difficult to answer because like many people, I, I'm not the only one, who finds these, these things um, don't capture a single thing because where it's difficult to reduce us to a single thing. So personality is plastic. To a certain extent, it's plastic. And again, we're contextual, and again, we're many things. So if, if you're in a, for instance, if you're in a nightclub, uh, what, and let's say you're, you're out for a particular reason, well, suddenly your, your gender, your sexuality might be super important in that context, but your gender and sexuality might be completely unimportant in the context of work where um, a certain skill base is what's important so what we also prioritize in ourselves also changes with context
1: it's it's amazing how many times how many times actually in fact, i would say the majority of times with all the people i've spoken to from monks to fbi negotiators that that same answer comes up you know i can be both really yeah depending on the environment i am both some people have a leaning towards one
0: Essentially, when someone says they have a leaning towards something, because it could be that they do endogenously have a leaning towards something, or it could be that they create an environment that purposely brings out a certain aspect of themselves. So they happen to be an environment in which they tend to behave extrovertedly, which doesn't necessarily mean that is their predominant nature. It is explicitly in the sense that statistically they're more likely to be extrovert because of the context in which they often find themselves in.
1: Well that was going to be my next question. Do you and maybe you've just answered it, can you consciously move yourself between those two states? Or as you've just said, is it about setting up different environments in your life that build that bring out different aspects of you?
0: It's a great question. I I wonder to what extent people can shift themselves versus create the environment that enables them to shift. So what they have control over might not be the shifting. It might be the environment that they construct. And what's more, it could be that that environment uh, can facilitate a number of things. And what you're less in control of is what's going to happen in those environments. And so I have the phrase, which is, you know, be careful the environment you, you select because you will adapt to it. And so you want to predetermine, is this an environment to which I want to adapt? Because your brain will. And so, But I purposely will actually construct environments uh, or put myself into environments that are maybe difficult, maybe because it's slightly um, nihilistic or something. But to to put oneself in what we call in biology the equatorial zone, in the space in between, you know, the edge of the forest where the land meets the water. That's actually where you tend to see the most diversity in life, is to be in the external zone. And that's the kind of environment that I tend to put myself into. Having said that, it's also super important to put oneself into environments where things are nice and predictable and familiar as, as well. To always exist in a space of chaos or uh, can actually be incredibly exhausting as well.
1: You actually, you've just, I've gone completely off topic already and we've only just started, but um, you just reminded me of of some content that I read of yours where you were talking, you were talking about rats and experiments that had been done on rats by I think a colleague of yours. And you were saying that you were showing the brain stems of rats and you were saying those that are in a challenging environment where they are, you know, challenged to learn, challenged to expand. Their, their brain cells expand. And it was, it was beautiful. It was huge. And then those that don't have any stimulus, who don't put themselves in an environment where they're likely to change, their brain cells died. However, those with too much stimulus, those rats that were in overwhelm with the amount of stimulus, their brain cells also atrophied and died. And, and that's what you're saying. It's important also to put yourself in environments where you get to recover, where there's some predictability, that's some right.
0: comfort. That's right. The The importance of space, of silence, is tremendous. Uh, having said that, there can also be a misconception about space and silence. But first, to go back to the experiments you're describing, those were done originally by Marion Diamond, who was a wonderful neuroscientist and person uh, who at, was my, happened to be one of my mentors at Berkeley many years ago. And unfortunately, she just recently died. But she was a tremendous spirit, and she did these, tremendous, these brilliant experiments with rats where she raised them in, in what we call enriched and under-enriched or over-enriched environments. And then she looked at the cells, not in the brainstem, but in the, in the cortex. And the significance of that is we use our cortex for our thinking. And what she discovered is, as you described, rats that were in an enriched environment, which means lots of other rats, lots of other toys, lots of activity, their brain cells grew tremendously. So imagine a tree with many branches and many leaves, whereas the rats who were raised in an unenriched environment, a deprived environment, the cells had atrophied. So imagine a tree in autumn where all the leaves have died and there are just a few branches. That's what the cells would look like. And what that demonstrates is that your brain is like a muscle. You use it to lose it. And it suggests also that your brain is basically evolved to match the complexity of its world. A more complex world, a more complex brain, a less complex world, a less complex brain. The rationale being that your brain is incredibly expensive. Right? 20, at least 20% of the energy we consume goes to our brain, which is only 2% of our body mass. So thinking is a really expensive endeavor. It literally requires ATP energy to think. And then if you're putting yourself in a novel environment, you're literally growing the brain cells. Tissue is being formed. In some cases, new cells are being born. And so you can take grandmaster chess players and get them to play a tremendously competitive game and they will burn hundreds, if not thousands of calories by simply sitting there and thinking. And, as you also said, that if you put yourself in an over-enriched environment for too long, your cells can also atrophy. So the very same molecules that facilitate brain growth can become cytotoxic at high concentrations. So really, it's about finding that balance. And it's a dynamic balance. It's not just being in one place, because your brain also habituates. So a lot of people talk about the importance of silence and space, and that that's where your great ideas come from. And that's probably, possibly true. I'm not sure how much research or evidence to suggest that's true, but let's imagine that's the case. What isn't really spoken about is the energy that was required before you went to that silent space. It's as if all you need to do is to be in silence and have space, and then suddenly the ideas will come. Well, if you're always in silence and always in space, it might not be the case. It might be that you need to do that pushing, that high energy, the lack of sleep, the, to a certain extent, the stress. And then when you relax and give yourself space, then it maybe is that cycle that's important, not in one or the other.
1: You, you, start, every, um, you start every presentation, every presentation that I have seen, and I watched mm. quite a few while I was researching you, it was like a, it was like a bottomless hole of of fascinating information. (laughs) Thank you. Um, You say all information is meaningless, which is ironic given what we're doing in this current moment. All information is meaningless. Um, There is no inherent value in any piece of data, not even the light that falls onto your eyes. Tell me, tell me about that because we live in a world of of endless information and we're coming out of a world where those that had access to the most information were often the ones that thrived so what do you mean when you say it's all meaningless
0: yes so the idea here is not to do postmodern relativism that you know everything is equivalent to everything else uh first of all the world exists and the world creates data sensory data energy that falls onto our senses Our eyes detect the energy that we call light. Um, Our ears detect the energy that we call vibration. The significance of what I'm trying to say is not that it's not useful. It's just that it's meaningless. It has no inherent value in of itself because the information, light does not come with instructions. It doesn't tell you what to do. Light exists, objects exist, but they don't tell you what to do. What's more, we have no direct access to the objects in the world. We have access to light that comes from these objects, so we have access to vibration or heat, but we don't have access to the objects themselves. And the significance of this is that the same quantity of data, the same nature of the stimulus, take, for instance, just a, a certain amount of light. Well, that could be generated by something that is dark under bright light or bright that's under dark light or it takes an amplitude of vibration that we detect as sound. That could be a loud object that's far away or a quiet object up close because your sensory system has no access to the distance, etc. It has no way of knowing from the data itself. The data is ambiguous in that regard because it conflates multiple aspects of the world. So at the most basic level of sensory detection, data is meaningless which means that your brain has to use something else in order to generate behavior. And because the data is not enough, it needs something else. And that something else is history. And that's where history turns data that is useful into meaningful. So, that's a challenge for many people because they say, well, I'm opening my eyes. I see all kinds of meaning. I see objects. I see colors. I see distance. Well, that's because you're looking at it in a sense. You're looking at it as a consequence of the process. What you're not seeing is the information that's actually falling onto your eyes.
1: And you, there's something that you said in that, that, that really caught my attention. You said that, you know, every our brain is a meaning making machine you know our, our brain takes data which is otherwise meaningless and it creates meaning and it does that based on assumptions that are derived from our history basically we we look at something our brain looks back into you know what historically has that meant and then we overlay that perception onto the object or the person so and i'm taking i'm paraphrasing so please feel free to correct me you right. you have you have said your history determines what you look at and what you look at then becomes your history because it moves into the past That's right. and so on. And so the inherent risk in this for all of us, especially when we're dealing with other people, other cultures, new ideas, uncertainty, is that our past, if we're not careful, creates our future in a constant, constant loop. Is that correct?
0: Very much so. So what I perceive now is I mean, the way you describe it is, is true. The only thing I would also suggest is that this is not necessarily cognitive. It's not something that you're necessarily thinking about. It's much more reflexive in the same way when the doctor hits your patellar tendon uh, just underneath your kneecap and your lower leg jumps out. The same thing's true more or less with perception. You get information, data, a stimulus that falls onto your eye, retina, uh, and that will generate a pattern of activity in your brain and what you see is a reflexive response to that stimulus. Well, the structure of that pattern of activity has been shaped. It's not random, it's been shaped. And it's been shaped by history. And what history gives you is a process of trial and error. So evolution is nothing other than a process of trial and error. Learning is nothing other than a process of trial and error. They're both empirical. And what's happening is your brain is literally being shaped by that experience. And so, and and so that evolution is giving you not only experience, it's giving you experience of what worked and what didn't work. So evolution doesn't give you accuracy. It doesn't tell you what's there. What evolution gives you is utility. It was useful to behave in this way and not in that way. If you came across a low energy light stimulus, well, that could be a hole or it could just be a dark surface. Well, for the our ancestors that misinterpreted it or saw a meaning of a dark surface when in fact it was a hole well they were selected out right and so we've inherited all of that history in fact when i talk about experience it's not just your own individual experience it's the experience of your family it's the experience of your culture your organization and your evolutionary history so you know most of your life happened without you even there but we've inherited all these and what experience gives us are we could in a sense, descriptively described as assumptions and biases, right? And that's useful because every time you take a step, you have hundreds of biases that the floor is not gonna give way, your legs aren't gonna, if you literally had to think consciously every single time you took a step, you would never take a step. So these assumptions and biases are very useful, but the problem is that the world changes. So our brain also has to change. Which is why your brain also evolved to redefine normality to constantly change its biases and assumptions.
1: And so you, you've also said that you know our, most of our brains are wired to perceive danger before we perceive opportunity to you know I think you said we, we are predetermined to notice sharp objects before we notice rounded objects just simply because you know our, our health and safety lies in that yeah. And conversely, all of, our, all of our history, all of our assumptions, all of our biases, we overlay them onto a person that we meet or an idea that we hear or something That's that we right. read. So that raises the natural questions that, that if our assumptions define what we perceive, how do we isolate our assumptions? How do we firstly identify them, notice them when they're coming up? Is that even possible, because you've said it's, it's very subconscious? And if it is possible, how do we break that loop?:
0: Yeah, that's a, also a great question, because if everything I'm saying is true, if, if, in fact, we have no free will in the moment, if, in fact, everything I'm doing right now, um, I, right the way from the perceptions of color that I'm seeing to the words I'm using right now are, are necessarily reflexive, granted in my history, And my history gives me my bias and assumptions then how could i ever see differently and the argument is that one of the first essential steps in doing so is to become aware of the fact that you have biases and assumptions and it's not that sometimes you have them you always have them every time you open your eyes open your ears so to speak reach out to the world uh, you are doing so with biases and assumptions, many of which you inherited. And only in accepting that as a fundamental fact of the way you have to engage with the world, do you have the possibility of actually seeing differently. So freedom comes from awareness. If you don't have awareness, you have no choice. Now, you might make a decision in a sense and feel like you're making a decision, but that's a post hoc description of what you did. Until you know why you're actually doing what you're doing, you don't really have the possibility of actually doing differently. So the first step is awareness that you actually have them and accepting that as a fundamental reality. It doesn't mean, again, that all assumptions are equivalent. Some things are better than others. But first, we have to accept that that's what we have. The second step is to figure out what they are. Well, there's another problem because almost never do we know why we do what we do quite apart from the fact that we always think we have an objective view of the world. It's just that sometimes we get it wrong. And, uh, so the the next step is to identify them and that's really difficult. And sometimes the best person to, to discover your, your biases is not you, it's someone else. So that's the power of diversity is not only um, do, I, do we know from mathematics that a more diverse landscape, a more complex landscape um, search space has a more likely possibility of having a good solution than a simple one, but also another person can reveal your own biases to you, especially if they come from a different background, if you do it in the right context. And so that's... Uh, One way of actually revealing your biases is, again, another person. Another route is through emotions. Often, this is a little bit simplistic, but often when we feel a negative emotion, it's because we're engaged in a situation that's different from what we expect. We've now stepped into uncertainty, so I feel a negative emotion. When I step into a situation that's familiar, that's exactly what I expect, I often can feel a positive emotion. So if you're engaged and you're feeling negative, often it's because there's a bias or assumption that's being challenged. So you can then know, actually, my negativity is actually a reflection not of the situation, but of my bias and assumptions about what the situation should or supposed to be. And then the nature of the emotion can help reveal what that bias might actually be.
1: The, you've just reminded me of this. There's an amazing magician that I that I interviewed recently uh, about perception, strangely enough, illusion and perception. And he talked about having a top five, making sure that you have a top five, which is five people who challenge you, that, who are have achieved what you want to achieve in your world, which then overlays two things that you've talked about. One being a diversity of opinions and the other being, you know, that edge that you talked about at the beginning between the water and the land, making sure that you are... That you are challenged constantly and then obviously yes. taking a break. The the other application of what we're talking about, so you've got firstly knowing you have assumptions, secondly recognizing the triggers. So a negative emotion means that I have an assumption or an expectation that's being challenged right now. Was that helpful?
0: Mm. The mm. other
1: the other application that I found amazing was and you used a you used an illusion to to bring this to life was that how you perceive yourself so we're talking about how you perceive the world here but how you perceive yourself literally determines what you physically see in the world and you were saying that Mm. people see colors differently when they feel powerful and people in a low state of power see patterns that don't even exist can you can you walk me through that because that's taking a state that most people would inherently go you know i i am this Mm. and it's flipping it and going, no, you are this based on an assumption and your view of the world is, is quite literally shaped by it.
0: Yeah, that's right. So how you feel about yourself will alter many things about your behavior right the way through to how you move your eyes, what you look at. And what we and others have shown that people who feel in a high state of power, and that doesn't necessarily mean dominance, this is a more biological term, where you feel that you're in control, you have agency. Yeah. And often it could be that you're in control of others, but it's more that you're, you have a sense of agency in yourself, versus when you feel in a low state of power, where you feel as if the world is happening to you, yeah. and you don't have much agency in what's going to happen next. And you can actually put people in different states of power pretty easily and pretty quickly by getting them to imagine a time that they were stressed and then to not just stress, but a time where they were stressed, but in control or out of control. And you get them to think about that in as much detail as possible for a few minutes, and then you get them to write about it, etc. Now, if you do that with two different groups, one group, high stress, in control, another group, high stress, out of control... After five minutes, they really don't think much has changed in the way they're engaging with the world. But actually, what happens is that their perception, even low-level perceptions, will be very different. So in one case, in in a low state of power, they'll start seeing patterns where no pattern exists. The low level of illusions that I create and others create, they actually increase. So it's as if what your brain is doing is trying to regain control, regain certainty. You'll use context more indiscriminately, and so, and this can happen in just five minutes of imagining a situation where you were stressed and out of control.
1: So, I'm trying to think of, of, of application of that. So, if you're Noticing patterns that don't exist, and you know, call that telling yourself a, a negative story. As, as its most basic example, I walked into a room, such and such didn't smile at me, didn't say hello. Therefore, that means that they must hate me. Therefore, that means that they're going to undermine me in the next meet. I mean, whatever the negative story is, are you saying? And, and the answer to this might be no. Are you saying that to step back from it for a second? If you feel yourself spiraling into a negative story where you feel powerless. And imagining a time where you felt powerful, where you felt like you've had full agency over a situation, that literally changes your physiology.
0: Mm. Yes, it can. Um, Well, in some sense, it has to change your physiology, right? Because it has to change your brain activity because you're doing the thinking itself. And that of course is happening inside your head so in that sense you are changing brain physiology it also means you're going to be changing the pattern of activity within your brain and the way new information is being processed so yes that can actually be a route to helping you do in a situation where you're feeling uh uncertainty and uncertainty is such a difficult and profound experience I would argue that almost everything the brain has evolved to do is somehow related to uncertainty. It's as if uncertainty underpins everything, almost everything at least uh, that we perceive behave and do. And because it's as if, uh, and the reason for this is simply that dying was easy during evolution, right? Staying alive is what was hard. So when your brain engaged, when you found yourself as a, Um, during your evolutionary history in a situation of uncertainty, what that meant was that you were less likely to be able to predict what was going to happen next. Well, if you couldn't predict what was happening next, you've actually increased the chance of dying. It's a very dangerous state in some sense to be in is in that state of uncertainty. So it's as if we've evolved a need and desire to increase certainty. And so much so that we will start looking for evidence to confirm what we assume to be true already, even when we sort of know that it might in fact be wrong. And this is such a powerful emotion that even people who have been diagnosed with a, with a terrible disease, in the lead up to that disease, if they don't know the source of that disease, they feel awful for both for the disease and for the not knowing. But as soon as they're given a the diagnosis, even though it's a negative diagnosis, there is a sense of relief because they now know, even though they know something awful. So this need for certainty is so powerful for us. In fact, this is the reason why many, many companies are successful, because they actually decrease uncertainty. Uber successful because not because they can help us get a taxi faster, easier, it's because they tell you when the taxi is going to arrive, right? So we've evolved to take what is uncertain and make it certain what's meaningless and make it meaningful. When we're in a situation where we're challenged, we feel tremendous stress, and often, not always, there are certain environments where we don't, but in most environments we feel um, a sense of dread and, and fear and anxiety when we don't know. To not know was to die.
1: And actually, that, there's some amazing data and, and science that's coming out now, especially that's done around the US elections in particular. The data that it is not impossible. In fact, there's some amazing information that's coming out that you know the role of storytelling, authentic storytelling in doing this, but to change someone's mind once they have, once they have clung on to that certainty about something, that no matter how much information you throw at somebody, it is nigh on impossible. To change somebody's mind at that cognitive level that's that's how much we want to be certain about something
0: yes yes and what's really important about that is what is it that you're actually trying to change their mind about so if you're trying to change their mind about something to which they identify that this belief is actually fundamental to who i am then they're very unlikely in many circumstances, not all, to change their view. Because to change their view, or at least to doubt that view, much less change it, is to actually doubt who they are. And you could argue that is one of, if it's not the most fundamental source of uncertainty, to not know who I am, because now I can't even predict myself. And so what people will try to do, unfortunately, in that situation, is they will give you data. So this was one of the, in some sense, the um, unfortunate way by which we've argued, scientists have argued about climate change. Because people, certain people identified with a certain way of being in the world. By giving them data, what often happened is you actually reinforced, ironically, their view. But what you did is you shifted them towards a faith-based belief rather than an evidence-based belief. And once you shifted them towards faith-based, well, now there's no rational argument to shift you from that. You're believing it because you believe it. You find power in the fact that you're going against the odds. And that's the basis of religion, to, to believe in something for which you have no necessarily empirical evidence. It's faith. And in fact, many, many Hollywood films celebrate this idea of going against the odds, doing it against all the evidence that you still make this decision and you come through in the end and you're the hero. Ironically, that's often the case for heroes as they do go against the odds. But that is, in fact, as you say, that's what's so difficult about shifting people, especially if you're trying to shift them away from something to which they identify. Much easier if you're getting them to shift away from something to which they don't define themselves, but they still have a strong view about it.
1: Something else you said that that I thought was was a, a, a key to this is you were saying that rewriting these stories, rewriting our assumptions, challenging our assumptions begins with learning how to question. And you said you know all revolutions yep. start that way, and you made this incredibly valuable point that in business and in education we are hundred percent focused on the answers, on the recipe. And mm. no time is given to ha- not only to how to ask questions, but not even defining what makes a good question. And if you look at our life now, how many times do we type questions into Google? You know, all the information we have access to is is predicated on the fact that we're able to ask a good question, that we know what a good question is. Mm. Can you can you give any examples of good questions? I know I'm putting you on the spot. That we can yeah. use to. Challenge override our assumptions and see possibilities and people more clearly than we currently do.
0: Mm. Well, what is I can answer it not in a specific um, in a specific way, because that will be dependent on the other person and what the context is. but more generally, what defines a good question? And I would suggest that what defines a good question is the question which you assume to be true already. And coming up with good questions is really hard. You could argue that is one of the greatest crafts of science is actually coming up with a good question. I personally think that science is really a way of being in the world. And that way of being is one that celebrates asking questions and in particular is good at coming up with good questions. Philosophy is another one where there's specific training almost in asking great questions, and then how you apply it is a different is a different thing. So, what the, all of that what that requires is a way of being in the world where you actually celebrate doubt, you celebrate not knowing as opposed to knowing. So when I start my talks, I often start in the same way, which is I want people to know less at the end of my talk than they know at the beginning. This is how I started off Deviate, the book, where I, want them, I say, you know, I want you to know less at the end of the book than you think you know at the beginning because nothing interesting begins with knowing. It begins with not knowing, right? And to not know well is hard. How to ask a question. So to, first you have to identify what it is that you think you know and why you think you know it. And then be open to the possibility of doubting that. Having said that, you also need a foundation from which to ask questions. So I don't want people to suddenly go out into the streets um, or when they're driving their car and start um, thinking, well, there's a a bus coming at me. I wonder if I can see this in a different way. No. (laughs) Get out of the way as fast as possible. It's just that we live life as if everything's a bus coming at us. So you need a foundation from which to ask questions. And I'd suggest that that's actually in some sense even more important. Uh, And that's what we're not doing in schools too often. And that's what we're not doing in businesses because schools and businesses are usually in the same service to each other, which is efficiency. Businesses want people to come up with answers. We typically lead from the perspective of answers. We're going this way and I know where we're going. Uh, and schools because it comes from the Victorian times where it was a good idea to try to increase efficiency. Right? We've teached children to know certain things, to go through um, recipes. Take science education. We do not often teach science in schools. What we teach is how to be a sous chef, not a chef. We say, follow this recipe. Here are the ingredients. Here's the question. Follow the recipe, and this is what you should find. That's not science. That's just an ability to follow instructions. And what you need in order to facilitate question answering, that question asking is an environment that actually celebrates those questions, which is what we call play. Play is really one of the evolution solution to uncertainty. Ironically, the very place that we have to go in order to be creative is the very place that we evolve to avoid, which is uncertainty. So evolution gave us a solution, a way of being in the world, which is play. And in that context, suddenly you celebrate questions. To not know is what makes the game fun, to not know who's going to win the game, right? And that's really what science is. is Science is play with intention. Anything that's creative, I'd argue, is play with intention. So creating that environment that enables people to ask questions, to also be with diversity, because in that environment, suddenly diversity can be celebrated as opposed to competition where you actually become confrontational. And also in that environment, you can now enter conflict with a question rather than answers. You enter a conflict with uncertainty rather than certainty. Imagine what would happen in the world if we actually entered a conflict with the intention of moving rather than standing still.
1: That's a really good. That's a really good question. Um, I remember a mentor saying to me once I was stuck with something, and they said, "You know, the problem is that you." You don't have the wrong answers. You just need better quality questions. You need to be asking yourself better quality questions. And as you're saying, entering into it with a sense of playfulness where the point isn't necessarily in that moment to find the answers. The point is to experiment and come up with better questions.
0: Exactly. And sometimes the best person to find those questions is, again, is not you. And you need questions if you're going to to change. And I would argue that the root, or rather the aim of change is not shifting. It's not to go from a to b. Um, it's to go, first of all, if you want to go from a to B, the first step is not B. The first step is to go from a to not a. right? You go from knowing to not knowing. you You let go of the bias and assumptions, the meaning of the stimulus, you still experience the stimulus. You know, you still step into, you know, people can practice this. Go into a shower, put it on cold, right? The cold is not gonna kill you. This is not gonna cause hypothermia, right? But go into the water, feel the cold water, right? But try not to attach a meaning to it. Try not to attach the meaning that this is bad, but also don't try to pretend that it's good. Just feel the water and feel its coldness. Now you're a not A, right? Then the next step is to not shift, but to expand, to expand your space of possibility, not to step outside the box. Cause the whole notion of stepping outside the box is a silly idea. Cause all you do is you step inside a new box. You can never leave the concept of bias assumptions, but what you can do is expand your space of possibility. You can increase this dimensionality. You can do that through diversity of people, or you can do that through the diversity of thinking of yourself. And in order to do that, you need, as you were saying earlier, you need to be challenged. So what's happening in American universities and American politics and this idea that people are having such a difficult time with sitting with just difference and trigger warnings and all this is that people are trying to protect themselves from expanding. Well, to, to literally, in nature, to live is to move. To live is to expand. To die is to stand still. And so there's this fight at the moment to stand still. And that's actually how you've been trained in arguments, that conflict. My aim is to prove that you're wrong, to shift you towards me. And you're trying to do exactly the same so we set up conflict to win but not learn to learn is to actually expand so what you need to do is actually enter with doubt and expand that space of possibilities through questions and that requires difference in another person in the right environment
1: i could it's such a fascinating topic to me i could i could go much further into that but it's something that i wanted to cover before i before i let you go and i know you have many places to be mm. um you've talked in length about the future of storytelling and yeah. you know if our our perceptions are just an ongoing ever-changing story and we have the capacity not just to listen to that story but also to write it you've i don't know if there's a quick way to answer this but you've talked about how in the future One of the possibilities is that there would be a tech overlay somehow, an augmented overlay on places and perhaps even people that would help us in the moment challenge our assumptions and become active participants in the stories that we're writing, the stories that our assumptions have written up until this point and the ability to question them and create new ones.
0: Yes. So that's actually the technology um, that we're developing. So I'm, I'm also founder and CEO of a tech company. And my personal view about technology is that useful technology, effectively technology comes in, in a sense, two flavors. You have useful technology and you have transformative technology. Useful technology tends to simplify. Right? It decreases uncertainty. Right? It gives you an answer. It tells you when the taxi is going to arrive in the case of Uber. Right? Um, transformative technology does something else. It makes the invisible visible. It reveals your own biases to you. Right? It expands your space of possibility. Consider, for instance, the sail of a boat, that which was invented on the Nile because the currents and the wind go in opposite direction. Imagine the consequence of the sail that enabled us to see cultures and landscapes we'd never seen before, and therefore challenging our preconceptions of what we have, of what um, uh, success or specific realities are for ourselves or for others imagine the telescope or the microscope or the mri the telescope that enabled us to realize that we're not actually the center of the universe it actually raised questions and that to me is where transformative technology comes from so that's where then narrative and storytelling come in where we can now actually use technology to help us understand ourselves and our own biases. And that's where we're directing our technology, is helping people to expand. And not just themselves, in some sense, far more interesting is creating spaces that enable other people to expand and also expand the perception of other and the world. So, for instance, we started an augmented reality platform about six years ago that enabled people to leave stories and locations to help you see the the history and the story of a place that no longer exists but in doing so you now perceive that space completely differently now imagine you can do that with yourself another aspect of story that's super important is that you could argue that we have no free will in the moment but where we have free will is in reshaping our past in order to change our future So if everything I'm doing right now is the history of my past meanings, not the history of what happened to me, but the history of the meaning of what happened to me, then the only way I can change what I'm gonna do in the future is not by changing what happened to me, but by changing the meaning of it. And you could argue that every single book, every single film, every therapy is really about changing the meaning of history in order to change literally my statistics of what will determine what we're gonna do in the future. So your brain is like a time machine, right? It's constantly, and in fact, the shor- shortest lived genre of book is in, is in fact a history book. It lives eight years on the shelf. We're constantly re-meaning history. The consequence of that is we will then, det- that will affect what we'll do in the future. You can also do that to the negative, which is often what's happening in the Trump election now. They're re-meaning the history to which people attach themselves in order to influence what they're going to do in the future in their in their specific direction.
1: The and my brain's going hundred miles an hour. <laughs> that the especially around history re- revisionist history. There's even a podcast because I think the re- revisionist history where you know history was written by in some cases in most cases the winners, the people who came out on top. Mm. And so we're constantly going back and redefining the meaning of, of the history books that we've been given. But I, I want to finish I want to conclude this interview with um, with hopefully, there's been a lot to think about. I know that I'm going to go away and <laughs> rethink most of my assumptions. If, mm. if I could give you if I could give you a stage and a microphone and in front of you, I could put every single person you would ever want to influence, What's the one thing, just the one thing, that you would want them to know?
0: I I would want them to walk away with the understanding that everything they're doing is a consequence of a history, most of which they inherited. Which doesn't mean that their behaviours are not useful. It's that in order to appreciate the humanity of someone else, you have to understand the source of your own humanity. And I would then want them to take that and pretty much all of our work is simply about creating doubt in people. Because if I can get them to doubt that their perceptions of color are an objective reality, objects exist, light exists, but color doesn't as a function of your brain, it's a function of context, then... How can they hold so strongly to their perceptions of another person? And therefore facilitating the idea of entering any future conflict with the intention of learning and therefore with the aim of asking a question rather than an answer. So what I'd want them to walk away with is a feeling of doubt with courage. And that understanding perception is not to then say, oh God, I have, you know, everything's subjective etc no no no. this is an empowering statement because the brain evolved to continually read fine normality it means you have the possibility of being part of the process of making meaning not just an innocent bystander of it
1: well that that's that's the two words i'm going to take away doubt with courage yeah i'm gonna that's a beautiful a beautiful reframe well Thank you so much for making the time, Bo. It's been an, an absolute pleasure to have you on the
0: podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it.
1: Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com. Pop in your email address. It is free. We will not spam you. But it is jam-packed full of all the ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work. It's called The Influencer Code. It's not long, but it is full of value. So download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business. Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.